This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Forgive me for running off the fine and the one thing I have to do. Welcome to the Washed Up Emo Podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. You're about to listen to part one of a special two-part series on the history of Vagrant Records. Rich Egan co-founded Vagrant Records in Los Angeles with John Cohen, and they spawned countless classic album and bands that we know and love today. In this episode, part one, Rich and I go back through the early history of Vagrant Records, including its successes, failures, and transitions the label made finding their way early on. In part two, we talk with Rich about Vagrant currently, the evolution of the independent scene as he sees it and his work as a manager today. Sit back, relax, and listen to a true pioneer in not only our scene, but the music business as a whole. This is episode 70, part one of two on the history of Vagrant Records with co-founder Rich Egan on the Washed Up Emo podcast. You know, I would love to kind of know, you were born and raised in LA, which is not uh, a common thing. Um, what was... What was like, you know, growing up there, finding out about bands, getting to see bands? What was the, you know, and obviously you went to school at, at LMU, you know, mm-hmm. staying in town. What was what was sort of the when you got into music? What 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 was it like growing up in LA? Um I think LA has a huge part of kind of shaping, you know, my musical taste and kind of like um you know, my musical ethos, if you will, because it was, it was kind of ground zero for punk rock when I was growing up. Um, you know, I was, I was probably 12, 13, you know, at the impressionable age of, you know, when you, when you start to see what your older sisters and, and your older friends are listening to, and you kind of start to gravitate towards that. But I grew up, you know, skating and surfing and, and punk rock was just kind of a natural byproduct of that. And, and because of that, I, you know, I, I discovered the descendants and black flag and, and social distortion. And, and it was kind of like, to me, it was, it was like discovering this new world that, you know, this was like discovering Atlantis because, you know, pre- yeah. prior, prior to that, it was like music was just background it wasn't, it wasn't any kind of like motivating force in my life. You know, it wasn't anything that, that it was just something that you heard on the radio, you know, like any other kid. Um, 
but and that stuff that, was being played on the radio. Um, well, it was being played on KXLU. You know, it was being yeah. played on college radio, and 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 K Rock was embracing you know X and and stuff like that, and and, and some bad religion early on. Um, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't anything that was easily accessible, which kind of made it that much, you know, being a teenager, the the more dangerous it seems or the harder it gets to come by, the more you want it. So, you know, I remember I'd be hanging out at, at a friend of mine's house named Matt Rice and we would we'd go surfing and we'd skate all day and then we'd go back and we'd listen to these to me at that time, these crazy records and, and Matt was that kid who had like, you know, his walls plastered with flyers from shows because he had an older brother, you know, and he was twelve mm-hmm. or thirteen too. He he didn't he hadn't started going to shows yet, but he was he was kind of the there's that kid in every school, you know, who was like who's just that far ahead, you know? So we would mm-hmm. go back and you know, he would play me the Sham sixty nine records and and uh the whole SST catalog and and I was just like I would just sit there and just go, what is this? You know, I was I was fascinated by it. So that was kind of like my first introduction to punk rock where I was like, this is something that I can identify with and, and it, it speaks directly to me, you know? Um, what did you do? What did you, was it, was it buying records? Was it borrowing them? Like it was usually, um, you know what it was, it was usually taping them. You know, we would, we yeah. would cassette tape to, from the vinyl to the cassette tape and then just Sharpie across it, you know, misfits, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was that simple. <laughs> and I had a, you know, I just, I would, I'd write down the track listing on a little card that came in the cassette and I would just catalog them. And, and that was kind of my education on punk rock, but I really fell in love with social distortion. Um, and, and kind of that became kind of my go-to for, for many, many years after that. I mean, <laughs> to this day, uh, they're still one of my favorite bands, but, um, you know, Orange County was a fertile ground for it. Um, you know, Bad Religion was obviously big in L.A., um, but it was just kind of a scene that it was older. It was scarier when I was when I was a kid um, during that incarnation of punk rock. I mean, we'd go to Santa Monica Civic and just stand on the outskirts of the Black Flag show. We'd stand at the wall and just just wide eyed. You know, we were 14 years old or whatever, and and there's you know the older kids, 17, 18 year olds, just wailing on each other and. We, and as much as, as scary as it was, you couldn't not be there. And it just felt like you were part of something, you know? Um, yeah. And it was, it was, it was an exciting time. And then it was, and then it all went away, which was really weird. Um, because what happened? I think it just, either the bands fell apart or the music really changed. I think there was a scene for a while and then, um, and then it, it just got to a point where, I mean, you know, um, like like even bands like Bad Religion were making experimental records, like Into the Unknown, and like just like weird things were going on. And then, you know, metal hair metal was coming around, and it kind of it was a sea change of like, well, punk rock turned into something kind of not very good anymore. And, um, and then it was replaced by something really just god awful, which was the, you know, which I couldn't relate to at all. 
Um, and that was kind of in my high school years. That's as I got later in high school and I kind of lost, you know, I felt like I lost a part of myself because it was like, okay, well that's gone. And, um, the kind of like alternative music was coming up at that point. And, um, I didn't, I, I did not relate to it, I, but it wasn't passionate about it, you know? And then, um, just as I was graduating from high school or maybe junior, junior, senior year, um, I discovered the replacements and who's do and, uh, an early soul asylum. And I was like, wow, there's something going on in the Midwest that speaks to me. It's not, you know, it's not the same as the descendants. It's not the same as bad religion, but it spoke to me at that point in my particular, in my life, you know, it was, and it was a lot more of what later in life I would sign to my label. It was, you know, it was more, and it's it, ironically at the same time I was getting into, singer-songwriters. I mean, at that point, Bob Dylan became, you know, my everything. So I have my my catalog of punk rock records, you know, and then I have Bob Dylan and uh, and Neil Young and and then I find, I discovered Paul Westerberg and this band called The Replacements. I'm like, well, they're, they're punk rock, but they're not Southern California punk rock, you know? They, they, they're DIY, but it's a, it's a it was like a new world. It was it was like, wow, somebody gets it. They're in the Midwest though. And then I just became completely enthralled with that. And um and I should back up one step. My first, my very first introduction to punk rock was Clash. And ah, that nice. but that was so far away, you know. But it was like I I got it, but I got it because they were popular because, you know, Rock the Casbah was on the radio. But then as I dug deeper I was like, wow, wait a minute. That's probably their worst song. You know, <laughs> should I say But I what an amazing song? thing to happen. Like you hear the clash on the radio, their pop song, but then you have enough know-how to be like, I'm going to go search for this band and, and hear that. What an amazing thing to like. And then of course they're going to have the catalog to fucking back it up. <laughs> yeah. It's the clash. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean that, <laughs> that I can, I can only attribute that to having older sisters and having albums. And leaving me alone in the room, you know what I mean? It was like, yeah, they were, I, I, I would pour over. I mean, this was uh, this goes to this day. If we still had liner notes, I miss those things the most. I would pour over liner notes, and I, I made it kind of my thing to find songs on albums that weren't the singles, you know, to listen to deep into albums. And for some reason, I always found like the ninth track was always my favorite track on a record, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like. Okay, I, combat rock. Yeah, I get it. They're big. My sister saw them at a thing called the US Festival that I was too young to go to. And I think that was her, their last American kind of appearance. Um, I did want. I remember. I, I distinctly remember her walking out the door to go see the Clash at the US Festival, and just going, "Oh God, I wish I could go." And um, but I, because at that point I had I had discovered them and, and, and had gone back and gone, "Wait a minute, London Calling doesn't sound like anything else." I've ever heard before from song to song, not just any other band, but from song to song. Yeah. And I wasn't, I didn't, you know, I was too young to intellectualize like, wow, this is revolutionary. But all I knew was I can't stop listening to this. So that was kind of my first like, but I, I didn't even consider it punk rock. I considered the clash to be something its own entity entirely, you know? And then, but that did open up my kind of ears to, okay, well then what is, you know, I knew they were called punk rock, but then what, 
what related, you know, going back to your Los Angeles question, I was like, what around me is the closest thing to that, that spirit, that feeling. And it was the DIY, you know, SST kind of like, wait, there's kids doing it who aren't a whole lot older than me who are putting out records and trying to make a change, you know? And so that's how yeah, I got and, into that. And then did did that continue at KXLU? Or I, I say KXLU because, I, I mean, so many records are, were broken, I think, at KXLU, or at least kids that were DJs, you know, Definitely. were bands and did stuff. Were you a part of the station or did you listen to it or was, I did. It, was it a big I did. part of I your life? I was and I did. Um, yeah, and in, in, um, once I got out of high school, I uh, well, it was um, – I, uh, let's see, in junior year, it's kind of like I was saying, when I discovered the Midwest and then the replacements, and I just became obsessed with the replacements. And it was, it was the replacements and the clash and social distortion were pretty much the only thing that I cared about musically. And um, then I graduated from high school and I ended up uh, working at um, KCRW, which is another real influential station in LA. It's a, it's a public radio station, but they just had amazing i mean it's just to give you an example i was just a kid who answered the phones there but um you know i got to see rem do a two-hour set live in our tracking room you know bob mool came in with a chestnut and did an hour and a half like and i'm sitting there i'm just a kid answering the phones and like wow i'm like that's michael stipe you know what i mean <laughs> it's, it's so it was i got a really unbelievable i mean listen to williams it was just like so many people came through there. And, um, so that was like, okay, this, that was my, that was, I, I went down, I spent a year in college down in San Diego and I was just not into the, I didn't really do the college life very well. I, I pretty much decided at 18 that I was going to, you know, do punk rock for the rest of my life. So I bailed <laughs> out of there and moved back and, and did a year at community college and worked at this radio station. And, uh, then I transferred to Loyola Marymount, which is which houses KXLU, and um, so I ended up, and and I was in the the communication arts department, so we had to work the radio station. So that was an amazing time because literally that was ground zero for that. It was like, I mean, let's see, this was ninety ninety two ish, yeah, ninety one, ninety two, and wow. at that point, I mean. I, I literally, again, I saw Nirvana come in do the do uh, their in-studio KXLU and then play Jabberjaw and then film the Nevermind video. Those are all kids I went to school with. I just happened to be sick that night, so I wasn't in the in the video, but my best friends were all in that, in the uh, uh, Teen Spirit video. So wow. It, it was pretty cool, you know? I mean, it'd be like, here come the germs. I mean, not the germs, the... Uh, um, the Mekons or whatever it would be like the, the Melvins. It would be just every week these these bands would roll through here, and it would just be like, wow, this is this is this is something. You know, we didn't know what it was, but this is something, and um, it was an incredible time. Now at the same time the Seattle thing is happening, then I discovered the next love love of my life, which would become Jawbreaker, and I was yep. just like, I mean, I remember. I had on fun, but I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to it. And then um, we, I went to see them at Raji's with a fake ID. It was like they rarely played 21 <laughs> shows, 
but for this one they were playing and and they they hadn't released um bivouac yet but blake was selling it from the stage and i bought it and uh actually my partner my partner in vader at the time or who would still my partner um john cohen had the 10 bucks so he bought it and uh and i took it and i was like this is it this is this is what this represents an amalgamation of everything that you know i want to be involved in everything i stand for you know, I love the, I love everything about that record, about how Job Record did their business. I love the Berkeley scene. I love everything. So through that, I discovered Jay Church and Sam I Am, and I mean all those bands, the Queers, the Mr. T Experience, and then, you know, basically Vagrant was launched. I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing. So, I mean, it was, it that was I mean crazy. just. No, I was just saying, like that list of bands. I mean, it, it, it's like you got your education for the label. It was like you know the from day one. It was the blueprint. Uh, yeah, it was I'm, totally. And it, it's, I mean, knowing the label, knowing Vagrant, like end to end, it's just it's hilarious because it's like you can just see the pieces come together um, for the either the bands or the aesthetic or. All that stuff. It was. It's just. I think people even listening now would kind of get it. Be like, "Wow, that makes total sense." <laughs> right, right. I, I remember telling somebody once. It was like, it, it, it's not that hard to figure out. You know, it's like you take. I love the Smiths and I love Jawbreaker and the Replacements. I'm like, there's my label. That's how you come up with signing the Get Up Kids. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it, it's not brain surgery. I just signed what I loved, and I happened to the love stuff that was all kind of happening at the same time, you know, but I I would say all that, you know, all that kind of rambling that I just did about like my influences, it all came together with Jawbreaker that showed me, you don't have to know anybody. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to have, you know, all these crazy connections or make a big deal of it. You just start making phone calls to bands that you like and scrap up enough money to put out a piece of vinyl. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, that's basically what I did. I, I, to, I don't think I've ever even told this story before, but the first, uh, the first thing we put out was, um, this box. Right? Yeah. Well, boxer was the first band we put out, but we put out a box set called West by North South, which was all of, uh, they're basically West Coast bands, and um, it was face to face. Who would obviously come to play a huge role in my life still to this day. Um, and uh, it was it was face to face. M I M, the Mises, Down by Law, J Church, Fluff, um, man, who else was on it? Oh God, uh, I'm blanking right now. Let's see, there was ten uh, uh, seaweed. Um, there was wow. just, you know, there, it was, it was, it was a great compilation and literally I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. I'm cold calling these kids going, Hey, I, you've never heard of my label. I'm spreading this record label. Can I get a song for my box set? And they were all so generous and just amazing that they all came through and they all gave me songs for, and I did, you know, five song, a five record box set split seven inches. And I had no idea how it was going to sell it, so I took out an ad in Maximum Rock and Roll that cost sixty bucks. <laughs> I took one out in Flipside that cost fifty bucks, and I said mail order ten bucks. 
and I sold out of the things before I even pressed them. And I'm like, oh man. <laughs> so we sold a thousand of these things. And all of a sudden it was like, I think we might have a little thing here. And uh, it was. Isn't that funny that two fucking ads does it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was all I had to do. There was no internet, you know? It was like. No, but it was just like flip side, Maximum Rock and Roll. Everyone fucking read it. Yeah. And that's all I needed to do. I took out these ads. I, I, li- I literally had no idea what I was doing. I put three $20 bills in the envelope, send it to Tim Yohan at a maximum, and the next, and it would show up two weeks later. And then I'd go to my, my P.O. box, and it would be filled with a bunch of mail orders. Like kids, like, supported this, you know, like, literally supported it. And I was like, how the, what the hell? And then, and so then we made that, and I was ecstatic. I lost my, my ass because I didn't charge for postal for postage. And so, so I broke even, I was totally, if I broke even, I was happy, but then we got, you know, a good reaction to it. And then some, uh, a great distributor at the time, um, that uh, was called goldenrod and, and they kind of went through cargo and they're like, man, we, we can't keep these things in stock. Would you consider making on CD? And I was like kind of a purist. I'm like, ah, CDs, I'm never going to make any CDs. But then we got so many like requests for it. I ended up putting on CD and, we sold 5,000 of them, which to me at that time was like, oh my God, that's like platinum, you know? So Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so it was, it was me in my bedroom and, 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 and stuffing envelopes with my partner and just, you know, like having a blast. And then, so we had a little bit of money and we're like, okay, well now what do we do? And, um, and then we decided that the, the compilation thing was, uh, was working for us. And at that then I started in the management business. So I, I, uh, I, I find face to face as a management client. And through them, I had obviously met a bunch of bands who, you know, were the scene at that point. And we ended up putting together the first before you're punk. And then that changed the game for, for us. We ended up selling, I mean, we had like 182 on it and face to face and unwritten law and, I mean, just everybody, you know, and then we put out a second one and they both collectively sold 150,000 copies. And I was this is still just me and John in our bedroom. We, I think we moved in off at this point. But, um, but you know, from, from the kid's perspective, for me, I mean, that's one of the records that you got. You were like, right. okay, you're into punk rock. Go, here's your no effects record. Here's your bad version. Oh, well, if you need the before you're punk, because you need to learn about this, bit. like it was sort of an easy way to get someone into it. Yeah, and that's kind of what we were going for because one thing I never, I never got, and it always kind of bummed me out was like the elitist part of punk rock where you had to be cool to know something. I was like, I kind of want to share everybody. I want everybody on this. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it, it was so life affirming for me, and I know that sounds over the top, but it really was. It was like I found what I'm supposed to do, you know, and what I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be involved in, and that first, I don't know what it was, but that first before your punk just struck a chord and we couldn't keep it in stock. You know, we literally could not keep it in stock. We were pressing records daily to, to just to fill orders. So yeah, we, 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 so we did the first compilation and then we're like, wow, we, you know, this could be a record label. We don't have any bands. <laughs> and, uh, and we did, we also did a J Church 7 inch, which made my life because I just adored that band. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have been happier. I was like, okay, we've made it. I can die happy. And I did a J Church 7 inch. And um, the, uh, then we said, okay, well, we should do a sequel. And I, 
I'm not a big fan of sequels with the exception of Godfather two, but, uh, <laughs> I said, I was like, all right, we'll do a sequel because the other one was so good. And I mean, we ended up, you know, no effects and everybody else flag wagon. Everybody did the second one and it sold just as well. And now we had money to actually do our record label. And unfortunately, Boxer, who I loved, and to this day, is still one of my favorite records we put out, put a great record together, and then broke up. <laughs> like two weeks after the record came out. So Wow. That was kind of our, our false start at like, okay, this might not be as easy as we thought. Um, but luckily, you know, around that exact same time, I was turned on this band called the Get Up Kids, and I was like... I could not stop listening to Newfound Interest in Massachusetts. And I was like, this is something completely, again, it's completely revolutionary. You know, I had that feeling like, oh, I, what is this? These kids, this is just, there's just that magic there. And I was just obsessed. And, um, and I contacted them because I heard they were looking for a manager. And, um, you know, I was just manning face to face at the time. And, uh, they were face-to-face fans, and I struck up a relationship with Matt and then the rest of the band, and they came out, and we met, and, and they hired me as their manager, and then, but they were going to, they were definitely going to sign to a major label, and so we negotiated with one for a while, and it, it ended up falling apart, and then we kind of looked at each other, and we're like, what about putting on a vagrant? And then, you know, we agreed that that would probably be you know, I kind of, at first I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to cross those streams. But, you know, we decided that we could make it work and, and they would get the best deal there. <laughs> and they're, you know, get the best deal and get their, um, do whatever they want, basically. So, yeah, I mean, they would have been top dog. It wasn't, it yeah. wasn't, they weren't the 20th band in the marketing meeting. They were the first and the only. <laughs> <laughs> they were it. They were it. Like we basically, we bought, we bet the farm on the Get Up Kid, and um, and John's John's mom and dad mortgaged their house to to come up with the money to sign them, and um, we were like, look, if we're going all in, this is the band to go in all in on. And it was weird at the time because you know Dog House was actually bigger than we were, and yeah. there was a lot of labels talking to them, and for whatever reason, it just. And and I love Dirk, and I think he did a hell of a job. Um, you know, I was certainly wasn't trying to steal the band, but they were looking; they were going to move anyway. You know, they had already decided they were they were leaving, and um, and for whatever reason, it just felt like you know we looked at each other and we're like, we can we can do this, and we did. I mean, it it sold 150,000 copies, which at that time was a crazy amount of records because. The, the promise ring was kind of the high water mark at like 30,000 records. And I was like, you know, they were the biggest, they were the biggest band in the yeah. scene at that point. So when we came out and did 150, it was like, Oh my God. And then, then kind of the floodgates opened from there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to ask about that a little bit, sort of the, you know, you, you have this sort of moment where you're kind of, like you said, you've got this 5,000 and you're doing great, or you've got the comps and they're doing this and you, you know, you bet the farm on get up kids and then that record just takes off. Um, what was it? What was it like? You know, was it like, Oh shit, we need to hire a bunch of people. Was it, uh, were there things that happened that you can't believe, you know, would have happened today or what were some of the, 
those kind of that i don't know that's sort of like you're like going to work and it's like absolutely crazy i've i've had moments like that where if it's records that i was at evr or, um you know even at a major you kind of have all this crazy shit happening what were some of that stuff right at that moment with the get up kids kind of taking off it was chaos i mean it was it was controlled uh euphoric chaos it and really I, <laughs> it, it was so much fun to this day it was probably the best memory of my career of doing this now for 20 years. It was, um, because it was one of those things where it was like kind of us against the world. And then we all, we all kind of felt like that, you know, the band, the label and everything. And we believed in the record. I knew as soon as our record was delivered that if people were going to flip out over it, just one of those things where you just know, but I had no idea that reaction that it would just grow that quickly, you know? Um, I mean, I, I'd love to sit here and say, yeah, we had this great marketing plan, but no, they made an amazing record, you know, and we made sure that people knew it was out. And we did, you know, we did stuff that was out of the box at the time that became commonplace. I mean, you know, and a lot of it, it goes to the people we had. I had, um, it was myself and John Cohen and, and Kevin Kusatsu and Kevin really was early on the internet and like, just kind of using that as a tool to spread, you know, what we were doing. And so I like even Kevin, like Kevin would buy the splash page of websites as our, as our advertising, you know, that was totally his idea, which became commonplace later on, but nobody was doing that, you know? And it was like Mm -hmm. things like that. It was like, wow, this is, these we're trying these things and they're working. Um, and so, so it was great because the band trusted us and we trusted the band and we just went all in together, you know? Um, and it was, but yeah, we did, we had to then go, okay, well, how do we get our records into Best Buy? How do we get our records into Walmart? How do we, you know, and, and so we had to hire people who knew how to do that because we were just kids in, in, in a one room office, you know what I mean? And we were yeah. using, and so we we hired a couple of people, which then became a couple more people, and then, you know, the next thing you know, they're touring with Weezer and Green Day and everybody else, and and then it's like, okay, now we need a publicist. Now the band needs a tour bus. Now there's ten other bands that want to sign to our label, you know, and it's just <laughs> it, it was it was nuts, and the the temp the temptation was like not let your eyes get bigger than your stomach, so it was like okay, the, you know, we are only going to solely concentrate on the get-up kids for however long it takes. You know, I'm not about just making this thing into this monolith, but it grew so fast and and so organically just based on how good that record was that other... And, 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 and you know, some of the stuff that we were doing that wasn't... that was either not done or shunned by the by the intelligentsia at the time, um, you know, whether it be a tour bus or, you know, whatever touring with Green Day, it was like, oh, well, indie rock bands don't do that. I love the fact that kids were like, well, we're not playing by anybody's rules. We're playing by our own rules, you know, because that's how we thought. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wanted I wanted them to be as big as they could be. I didn't want them to be uh, a secret, you know? No, I mean, I that was huge. I mean, the Vagrant Across America thing, 
you know, the, the, the when I saw like four tour buses in front of Irving Plaza, <laughs> that fucking blew my mind. I still talk about that. I still tell, I'm like, dude, let me tell you, there were these fucking bands that were punk rock and there were four buses. Like that was me going to see an arena show and it was at that Irving. That was a crazy time. That was a crazy yeah. time. That was even, you know, that was pre-dashboard and I mean, that was, that dashboard was on it, but that was. Yeah, that was about a year and a half after the Get Up Kids broke. That that's kind of what it became because we got to a certain point where it was like, no, it's on. You know, like this train is going down the tracks whether we want it or not. So it became then like, okay, we just sign saves the day. And within, I think within like a three month period, no, not even that. Maybe like a a, a six week period, we signed Rocket from the Crypt, which was one of my favorite all time bands. Saves the day. Alkaline Trio and Hot Rod Circuit. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what the hell is going on here? And then, and then, you know, at that same time, as I'm trying to go, okay, we can't find anything else because we have to concentrate on these bands. I get this acoustic demo from Amy Fiddler from this kid who she's been working with named Chris Caraba. And I go, I was like, I can't listen to anything else. I can't sign anything else. And, and Amy would play in her office and I walk by and, how it actually happened was Matt Pryor was looking for an opening after the New Amsterdam's tour. I mean, and that's the other thing that was happening. I mean, we'd signed the anniversary because we gave mm-hmm. Get Up Kids, Heroes and Villains, signed the anniversary and Reggie and Full Effect, and those things were doing well. And then New Amsterdam's was doing well. And so much was spinning off of the Get Up Kids momentum that we were just trying to keep up with what they were doing. You know what I mean? But yet still grow the label, you know, at a pace that was that was sane and laundry and reasonable. And then um Matt was going on tour and we needed an opening act and uh Amy Amy had given me Swiss Army, you know, the the fiddler version of Swiss Army and uh and I finally put it in and I was like mesmerized by it. And I remember calling Chris up and he was he was he had just left LA on the tour. I missed him and and he was like, Well I'm gonna be playing New Jersey tomorrow night and um he was opening for New Found Glory and Hot Rod Circuit in Midtown. And he was the first of four. And he's like, if you want to come see the show. And I said, I'm there. So I got on a plane and I flew out. And I saw him play at Club Chrome and our Club Benet. I think it was called Both of Those, like one time or another in New Jersey. And he was first of four in the bill and pulled up his stool. And and, and people were talking, you know, he has an acoustic guitar and a drummer. And it was, people were like, kind of like, kind of, what's this? And the next thing I knew, every, the room was dead silent. Everybody, there's 1,500 kids there. They're all pressed up against the stage. And then he sold, I think he outsold everybody in merchandise that night. And nobody knew who he was when he got there. And I was like, this is something I've never seen before. Yeah. I mean, so I, then, saw the, I saw him, no, I saw him ahead. open up for the Snapcase show at Roseland. Oh, the Space H2O Snapcase tour? Yeah, and I remember like I was obsessed with him at that point, and it was like you just—it was crazy. I'm like, this kid in the acoustic guitar is opening, and it's all these hardcore kids, and yep. it was such a—it was such a interesting, you know, thing to see happen. But he won over so many people, and it was full of fucking tough guys. Oh yeah, and that was an interesting conversation because that's once we had signed him. Like after we signed him. Face to Face was going out on that tour. They were headlining tour, and it was Snapcase to H2O, and we needed an opener. And I, I had this crazy thought that I was like, and Chris is fearless. You know, you put him in front of people, and he'll 
they'll either love him or they'll hate him, but they'll remember him, you know? So I called mm-hmm. him and I'm like, Hey dude, there's this opening slot. What do you think? And he goes, what do you think? I, I go, I honestly don't know, man, but it's going to make it a statement. And he goes, let's do it. And Trevor from face to face was like, absolutely put him on the tour. And, and the H2O guys were great to him. The Snapcase guys were great to him. And, but there were nights he was getting chains thrown at him and people, you know, booing and, but half of the people loved him and the other half hated him. And that's when, you know, you know, something great. It's when, yeah, but that half that did, they fucking told everybody because exactly. the next time he came by himself or with another tour, everyone already knew the words, everything. Exactly. And it was, it was, he did the whole tour and he was a trooper. He did, he had pneumonia in part of that tour. Actually at the Roseland show, he had pneumonia. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, he was, he was, he was a wreck because he just, I remember when we met, when, when he signed him, he said, look, I've got, I've got songs written. I just got to pay off a credit card. And my van needs about a thousand dollars worth of repair. And I was like, Nope, <laughs> we can do that. And he goes, I'll stay on the road forever. If I could just leave some, some stuff in your warehouse. And he did, I think the first year on Vagrant, he did, we counted, I think he did 300 dates. That's that 365 days. He's played 300 days. And we just, it just grew like nobody's business. And, um, and it was, it was just a, it was a machine. And, but, yeah, in between there, the Vigor America tour, you know, I mean, I'm kind of skipping all over the place, but it was, it felt like that. It felt like things were skipping all over the place because they were moving so fast. But at a yeah. certain point, it was like, we looked at, we had Outline Trio, Saves the Day, the Get Up Kids, and Dashboard, and they were all pretty much the same size, and they were all blowing up. Actually, Saves the Day was the biggest one coming off of EVR. Mm-hmm. And then, so, Saves the Day headlined the tour. Saves the Day and Dashboard did all the dates and then the other bands dropped in, in in separate sections. But we did, I think we did 49 dates on that tour. And, um, you know, we, my, my kind of vision of it was like the buddy Holly Winterfest, you know, where they all mm-hmm. rolled the whole way were rolled out together and they did, you know, it was just a big kind of like, I don't know, show of solidarity and, and just like, this is what we are and this is what you need to be a part of. And it was, it was just crazy. That's what, you know, next thing I know, Rolling Stone is doing articles on us and Newsweek is doing articles on the label and, and you know, Dashboard's now getting an MTV unplugged and, you know, Saves the Day is all over MTV and it's just, it was, it was a wild ride. You know, we you were know just trying I, to keep up with it. Yeah, you know, it's part of, I, I don't know if you remember this or I might have told you, um, do you I I want to know if there's any and you don't have to tell me if you don't want to but are there any funny stories from the stuff with TVT? Because I mean I was super new when I was there and I remember hearing like oh yeah we're gonna have like we're gonna distro them I was like what that's one of my favorite labels like are you kidding me? <laughs> and um you know even when you guys came in and I was like holy fuck that's the dudes from you know I was I had everything and would see the shows and I, that place is you know. There's an amazing story that will never be told on a podcast, but were there anything funny about that moment and sort of, again, obviously you guys moved on to bigger uh, partnerships and then, you know, came back, which I want to get into, but was there anything funny from those years or was Uh, was it like, or even like two minutes versus? Yeah, it was, it was, (laughs) it was crazy because it was like the TVT experience was, we, it was so nuts, man. It's a long story, but it's it's 
I don't know if anyone else will find it interesting and it doesn't have to make the podcast, but the reason we ended up at TVT was because we were pressing our, our records through basically a porn distributor who made porn DVDs down the street from our office. And we were, we, we were keeping the guy in business. We were pressing so many records. It was basically the get up kids at that time, but the other one started coming on. Um, I don't think we hadn't released We had not released the Save the Day record yet. And we were just about to release the dashboard record yet. I mean, we we're just about to release the dashboard record. And, and we found this guy who would manufacture our CDs really cheap. And then he would drive them over in his truck and deliver them to us every day. And then we'd ship them out to our distributors. So, but it was a shady operation being that it was porn. And <laughs> so I'm at the, uh, I'm at the, face-to-face, I think it was actually the face-to-face Snapcase H2O dashboard tour. I'm at the Trocadero in Philadelphia and I get a call from John and he tells me that our manufacturer, and this isn't funny, but in hindsight it's kind of funny in a dark, dark way. He goes, he calls me and he said, Jonathan's been killed. And I said, who's Jonathan? And he goes, the dude, our manufacturer. I was like, (laughs) I was like, what do you mean he's been killed? He goes, he got killed by the Chinese mafia. And I was like, I was like, well, what does that mean for us? And he goes, dude, we don't have a distrib- We don't have a manufacturer and distributor anymore. Cause we Holy literally, shit. Yeah, we couldn't, and we, we couldn't keep up with the records as it was. So he's, he's like, and we, and cause he was the only guy who would give us credit. You know, we, we didn't have any credit. So he would press up our records. We'd pay him when we could because we were just two guys in a room. So, so now we're going to have his creditors coming after us for all this money. So we're like, oh, my God, we have to go get a real distributor. So we talked to all the distributors that all of the labels that we worshipped, you know, went through the epitaphs and fats and discords and merge and everybody, and nobody wanted us. They, well, they, they wanted to distribute us, but nobody would manufacture our records because they just didn't, you know, they go, you have one act. We don't know, you know, what this label is going to be. And uh, frankly, I don't blame them. But Steve Gottlieb, who ran TVT, took a chance and he goes, I'll give you, I'll, I'll press your record for you also and distribute it. And he's the only one who stepped up to do it. No <laughs> shit. That's how it happened. And so I, I never heard of him except for the Nine Inch Nails record. I'm like, I, uh, okay. But literally we had nowhere else to go. So we did the deal with Steve and the only, the only stipulation was that we got to keep our mom and pop distributors that we had been going through, you know, your people who ordered 10 records a week. And yep. he said, yes. And then as soon as we, we did that deal, we, uh, dashboard. I remember going in and going, Hey, there's this kid. He plays acoustic guitar. He's going to be at Roseland next week. You guys should come down. He's going to be huge. And, and he was like, I don't really hear it. I'm like, trust me. I just have a feeling about this. And, um, and dashboard started to blow up and the outline trio started to blow up. And then we had the save day record coming out. And then they were, we were told we can't go through our mom and pop distributors anymore. We had to go all the way through TVT. And I was like, sorry, those, that's our bread and butter. You know, those mom and pop distributors made us. And so things being as they were, you know, he wanted to protect his rights and we ended up in court over that and, and suing each other because we wouldn't give him the save the day record. And uh, we found another distributor for it, so we got sued, and blah blah blah. We ended up we ended up settling out of court and staying with them for another three and a half years. But um, 
it was it was also a tumultuous start that starts with our our, our uh, porn manufacturer getting killed, which is how we ended up in TVT. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's almost fitting that you end up with TVT that way. Um, it's a funny thing. <laughs> it's almost fitting. Yeah, just full yeah. disclosure, everybody, I, I, or to everyone listening, I worked there um, for three years. It was my first job out of the out of college, pretty much, and working and learning. And it was an amazing place because it was like it, it was like a major, but it was an indie, and they like yeah. made a fuck ton of money <laughs> because yeah. they had no like middleman. <laughs> Yeah, so it was a it was very very interesting way we ended up there, and they and they had everything yeah. from like 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 Pitbull and Lil John to us. You know what I mean? It was so random. Seven Dust. Yeah, Seven Dust. I mean, it's the Nine Inch Nails catalog, all the compilations, the TV compilations. It was just it was complete, and it was so us because again, nothing ever went by plan with Bayer. We were always just making it up as we went along in the early days. Yeah. And I think this kind of this is a this might be controversial and I think I I've always wanted to know this because I believe that um you know I think things happen for a reason but there's this argument out there you know that Vagrant kind of just swooped in and took bands at the right time and happened to ha- you know be you know this and I and I I always said I was like bands don't always want to stay at the same label or bands want to do other things or th- I mean how many labels has ACDC been on or like, you know, Pink right. Floyd's been everywhere. So it, I guess I, I've thought of it, but I, I think there's so many people that would think that. And I just said it was a perfect storm. Like wouldn't hot rod circuit want to do it? Wouldn't, you know, if get up kids is telling their friends band, wouldn't they want to come with them? Right. That was me. What was your, what was your sort of feeling when, if, did you hear that back then? And yeah, what was sort of you know, your we did, we did, we got that. And um and I understood it because we we were doing something that really had never been done, which was we were signing indie bands off of indie labels to another indie label. You know, and that was totally new. It, no one had ever done it. It was you either you were on an indie or you, and you stayed indie or you went indie to major. You know, and I think it took the Get Up Kids saying, "I don't really want to be on a major, but you know." we think we're time for a change from doghouse and we just have to be at the right place at the right time. And they kind of set the precedent for that. Um, and, and I always kind of laughed at the, like not laughed, but I always kind of like people said, Oh yeah. In hindsight, it's a sure thing. Like, well, the get up kids were huge, you know, um, and saves the day was huge. And that <laughs> tree was huge when you signed them and dashboard confessional. I'm like, okay, let's look at it realistically. Get up kids had sold 10,000 records on doghouse. You know, Phase of Day had sold 30,000 records on EVR, which was a lot. Dashboard had only put out Swiss Army Romance for a week. You know, he sold 1,000 copies of it. And and Hot Rod was on Triple Crown, and, and you know, they didn't sell a lot of records. And the trio was on their third record, and their best-selling record was 10,000 records. So it wasn't like we swooped in and signed, you know, the Beatles. It was like these fans <laughs> were selling, you know... They they were selling okay numbers. They were selling great numbers for little independent labels. And then, I mean, then one of them went, you know, Dashboard sold 800,000. The Get Up Kids sold 300,000. Saves the Day sold 300,000. The Alpha Country sold 250,000. You know, it, we we took them to levels. It, they, were, they were not sure things, you know. It was like, especially the Alpha Trio, who to this day are 
remains one of my favorite bands that ever signed. They were literally on their third record and never broke 10,000 records, you know, on Asian Man. And that's yeah. not a, an Asian Man. That's just, you know, that's how they were doing it. We were just kind of doing it like on, on just, we just had, I think, different goals and, and we were willing to just keep reinvesting and in, in, in marketing and, and distribution, you know? So, yeah, I, but I did. I heard the, oh, well, you guys are just signing bands that are already popular. It's easy. Like anybody could have done it. And I'm like, yeah, but there's the, the you know, the, the history books are littered with bands who went from selling 40,000 copies on an indie to a major to selling zero on a major, you know? So it seems, oh, yeah. like, a, oh, it seems like a sure thing in hindsight, but it never, it never made me angry to hear that. But I always kind of like, well, the reality of it is this. We sold, you know, 180 times what they had sold on their last record. I just so. feel it was those like yeah it was those punk rock guys that are like well I'm trying to be holy, you know holier than thou I'm like yes 10,000 for a get up kids record is a lot for the indie scene but don't you want your favorite bands bigger I do I want them to be around longer I want them to right. make more records uh right. it wasn't like a it wasn't a yes they're in a bigger venue but it wasn't like a bad thing <laughs> Yeah <laughs> if, if 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 they're not good they're going to break up <laughs> Yeah. Or if they don't, you know, do well, they're going to break up. <laughs> totally. Yeah, they're, they're going to be um, working at Quiznos. And, you know, and yeah. I understood that. I mean, I was I was 17 once, and I was, man, I was, I was so pissed when Jawbreaker signed to Geffen. But, you know, and, but, so I got that. But this wasn't, this wasn't Jawbreaker signing to Geffen. This was bands going to a smaller indie label that just happened to blow up. We all blew up together. You know what I mean? And, and what's great is those bands, a lot of those bands are still around. Oh, yeah. Um, I think they're, you know, they're you know, timeless. Yeah, and I think what's funny is uh, Josh Berwanger, was, I was talking to him earlier, and he, he says hi, by the way. He was like, um, well. you know, he was happy. Asking, he's how, how still playing. Oh, I know he was talking girls our... basketball last I heard. Yeah, like half our podcast was about his his, his basketball team. I, yeah. I was like, I don't care about anniversary. I just want to talk about you coaching. Uh, yeah, but he, but you know, awesome. he's still making music. He's still doing stuff. I'm. I just, it, it, you know, obviously the braid dudes with Hey Mercedes, and you yeah. know, obviously Reggie, uh, Chris is still doing stuff. I just, it seemed like you guys got to this point. You were successful, and it kind of kept kept it going. Um, and it, Obviously, that leads to the you know mid two thousands, which is an interesting time for me. Um, obviously, being seeing these sort of things change from, hey, my favorite bands are on the college radio station, and now they're on MTV, and now they're all over the place. Um, I'd love to get into that more of like what was your feelings as things sort of moved into the mid two thousands, and it just, it, I mean, it even got bigger. I felt yeah. like it just went nuts. That was a weird time. That was a weird time um, because it was the sound was changing, you know, and the the I think the goals were it it wasn't my favorite time of our evolution, um, but you know I think it was I mean it was in many respects I I it was I was ecstatic to see Dashboard doing what he was doing, and um, you know that. But in terms of the label, I mean, we were now at like 18 employees. We were signing bands that weren't exactly, you know, the, the, the scene was, it was, there was a lot more of a hardcore element coming into it. Um, 
you know, so we ended up finding bands who, you know, you want to stay, you want to stay true to what you believe in musically, but you don't want everything to sound the same. So at that time we'd signed, you know, we signed up for Modern Ashes and we signed Census to Fail and we signed to Bled. And, you know, the scene was changing and it wasn't like we made this, this edict, like, okay, now we have to sign bands that are more hardcore. It was, we were signing the evolution of what was, you know, what our scene was turning into, you know? Mm-hmm. So because of the position we were in, as at that point, we were pretty much, you know, more or less arguably the, the biggest of our lot of labels. Um, it was now we had to choose from bands before we were, had to go convince bands to sign to us. Now we were like, you know, yeah, this band might sell a lot of records, but do we all believe in it? You know? And, um, so it was a weird time. It was a weird time. We had a lot of releases and we tried to balance it out with, with, you know, passion projects like Paul Westerberg and the Lemonheads and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, stuff that, that that my idols that I got to work with. So, and meanwhile, we have a platinum artist who's selling on Madison Square Garden at the same time in Caraba. So it was, <laughs> it was a very, very strange time. And then, and since this fail, you know, blew up. I mean, we sold 400,000 copies of a band who was stuck on a major, not being able to get a release out, you know, but it wasn't, it was, it was just different because the expectations of both the, the expectations and the finances were different, you know, the, for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it wasn't like we could sneak up on anybody anymore, you know? So everything got more expensive, everything got more elaborate everything. And it, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't my favorite time because I liked being the underdog, um, and things, but it was, it was definitely a prosperous time for the scene. And then, and, and also kind of a divisive time at the same, at the same point, because you had bands who were, you had the major labels that co-opted it at that point, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Thrice was on a major, um, yeah, I mean, follow-up Boy was starting to just, percolate you know brand new was had moved to dreamworks i believe at that point um yes. they, they left vagrant and went to dreamworks um so it was kind of like it became more careerist and more like okay what's in where's mine you know we've done our deal with interscope um so it 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 changed it wasn't it you know frankly speaking it wasn't as fun but it was much more of a business you know um, is that what it was that that because ha- that's what I felt like it changed like not saying it doesn't not saying it doesn't have to be like that but it I just it felt like a fucking factory like I yeah. I mean I would I would count the swoop haircuts and all press I mean I was like I was like is this what are we doing like right. where's that where's that different tour where it is dashboard and snapcase it, it it was these mm-hmm. tours with the same type of bands I I just I couldn't I I couldn't understand it that. I mean, yes, it, it did go pop, and the major labels were all over it, but it just seemed to turn into this factory. Totally, yeah. But taking and the name along with it, but taking the name along with it. <laughs> of course, naturally. Well, they got to call it something, you know. They got to coin it something. Um, yeah. But that 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 was kind of a yeah. It was kind of a time, and I think our re- our natural reaction to it was just post that was you know that's when we signed the Hold Steady in two thousand and six, which was an amazing band and you know we started signing we signed uh, the future heads and we signed dios and we started to change because 
it just wasn't what we did anymore. Somebody else was doing a, their version of what we did, and, and I just didn't believe, you know, it didn't feel authentic to me. So it was like, there's got to be something else out there. And, uh, you know, so we started to, to branch out in terms of our sound as a label. Um, and and it, it, it kind of naturally just evolved into that based on the fact that either our bands were making different music, you know, the Get Up Kids definitely strayed, went away from their original sound. Now, Save Today strayed from their original sound. Um, Chris became, you know, he went from an acoustic record to now he's got the Spider-Man soundtrack and, you know, <laughs> and Stolen is on Top 40 Radio. You know, it, it was just a yep. different, it was a different league that I wasn't sure we wanted to play in. You know, I definitely wanted my, because I managed several, all, actually all three of us actually just managed, I mentioned was Save the Day and Get the Kids and Dashboard. I wanted them to do as well as they could and stay true to their music on the major labels. Well, get a kid say it on Vagrant, but, you know, um, and so did Dashboard, but it was a joint venture with Interscope. And then Save the Day and Gone on Dreamers. I wanted them to do the best they could and be as huge as they could there, but it was different because there was a different set of expectations and pressures on them, you know? And I saw it where What was them. your gut? What was my gut? Yeah, like, what was your gut feeling? Like, is this, because it felt, it felt to me, it was just this, I mean, people were coining the term feeling fake. Like, did you just, you were like, am I going to wake up one day and this is all, like, going to be ending? Or was it Um, just kind of riding it? No, it was, it was, I had started to transition more to full-time management at that point. And I was just Mm -hmm. basically doing A&R and marketing for the label I had a great staff, you know, we had a great staff, John and I. And, um, but I do remember a kind of a turning point when Dashboard won the MTV award, I kind of remember thinking, okay, well, it's, that's that, you know, it's, we've officially crossed over into the mainstream and that's never where I've ever <laughs> wanted to be. <laughs> so there was yeah. kind of that gut feeling of maybe like, I don't know, once after Nirvana broke and then we started having the candle boxes of the world and all those things popping up, there was kind of that, like, you know, it's this now, you know? And I just didn't mm-hmm. relate to that, you know? And I mean, ha- more... having the indie stuff was great. I mean, having the Hold Steady or the French Kicks or the Rocket stuff, like, mm-hmm. that was that was kind of the... I mean, cause I, what I loved is that kids got into those bands because they respected vagrant and liked and that's what you kind of want from any label you you see sub pop you see equal vision you see vagrant whatever it is you're gonna you're gonna assume that they've done the the work for you and right put something out um because it because it can change totally yeah and you know kids when you're 15 is a lot different when you're 18 you know and yeah we weren't we weren't trying to morph with them but it was like look if you can if you can buy a Paul Westerberg record when you're picking up the anniversary record, good for you. You know, you're going to, that's going to give them an education. And I, and, but I never, as much as I was that kid who bought everything on SST, I bought everything on Epitaph. I, I didn't want Vagrant to be, Oh, well I have to buy it cause it's a Vagrant record. I wanted people to go, you know, make decisions, kids make decisions for themselves, but try to tie it back together. You know what I mean? On their own without the, yeah well, must buy that, you know? Because there, there are labels who do that very well. They put out a lot of stuff that sounds a lot like the stuff they put out before, and it works. I just, 
I never thought our band sounded all that much alike if you really put them side by side, you know? Um, it, it just, it so happened they shared like an ethos, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like the anniversary sounded like Dashboard or, you know, Hey Mercedes sounded like Rocket. You know what I mean? So it was like, I yeah, it is that ethos. Sound. Yeah. Yeah, it is that ethos. It was, I mean, I think there's a certain subset of kids that, you know, heard Moog for the first time from the anniversary. Yeah. Um, and that's what they're, I mean, I posted a video of theirs on my site and it's just instant shares, reaction, likes, people are just talking about it and it's just, you know, copy of some crappy video. And, but that's, it's, that was like, that was it for them. Um, and you'd hope that, you know, they learn something else from that. So I think that's a great thing to think that there's still that instant reaction to some of those bands and they stayed through. And that was my other point. Like a lot of those you the bands on Vagrant kind of stayed through and a lot of the ones that maybe were in there in the late two thousands, no one's talking about them anymore. Right. Um it just didn't it just didn't connect. Yeah, and I think I, that goes that that speaks volumes. You know, if you can still be around, if people are still listening to your stuff or reading your stuff, whatever your art is, if people are st- if it's still affecting people a decade later, you probably did something right you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of um, all you want to do is, is make a mark, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've told Matt this, like my favorite get up kids record. And he, he, he laughed. He's like, don't tell me it's something right home about. I was like, no, it's on a wire. Like <laughs> I fucking love that record. I think yeah. it's depressing, which I love. I love depressing music. Um, it's it just, it, it's, I like that you guys tried something completely different. Um, you know, some people say their favorite promise rings wood water. It's just cool that you could have a long enough career where you can do that. It's not like two records and then you're done. Right. Um, especially for them. And, uh, and with, you know, with, it's, it's daring and I, and you've got to respect that, whether it's your favorite record or not. I, I went through this thing where I was like, wait, am I, am I jinxing these kids? Because, because Save the Day went, Save the Day made in Reverie as their second record working with me. <laughs> yep. The Get Up Kids made On A Wire and, and Face to Face made Ignorance Is Bliss. And those were three of the most divisive records that any band could make. And But in hindsight, people are, like you just said, people are like, I love those records now. You know what I mean? Ignorance and, and Bliss is still my favorite Face to Face record. There you go. <laughs> You're that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I totally am. <laughs> and, and it's like, and I know that feeling of like, because I remember when Dear You came out, I was grumbling, but I couldn't stop listening to it. And as much as I said I hated it, I, I listened to it day before yesterday. You know what I mean? When Jawbreaker put out Dear You, I was like, this is awful. And yet, 10 years later, I'm still listening to it. So yeah. I get it. You know, I get it. But uh, it's interesting. It's just, I started to think I was, I was jinxing these kids. <laughs> I heard about your trip. Heard about your souvenirs. I heard about the cool breeze and the cool nights and the cool guys that you spent them with. I guess I should have heard of them from you. I guess I should have heard of them from you. Don't you see, don't you see That the charade is 
over And all the best deceptions 